I think it's a matter of will, organization, and having some sense of moral compass. <laughs> we have to make it trendy. We have to make it hip. These political entities, they have to see some sort of incentive to do this. But it's totally doable. Hi, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. This week, we meet Dr. Maurizio Gonzalez. He is the CEO of the Human Restoration Program and the founder of Veggie Power Summit, the largest medical seminar in Latin America that educates people about the science of plant-based nutrition. Originally from Mexico, Maurizio's journey began first with studying nutrition before deciding to continue on to a medical degree in the US, where he is currently a resident at the Metropolitan Hospital in New York. During his studies, he came to realize how little attention is paid to nutrition as part of a more holistic view on health and wellness, which pushed him to switch to a plant-based diet himself and fill the gap he identified between nutrition and medicine. Through his platform, Maurizio teaches others how to adopt a healthy plant-based diet and change their lives for the better. As the founder for the first ever plant-based medical immersion program in Latin America, he educates other people, including physicians and nutritionists, on the health benefits of having a vegan diet and the science behind it. His YouTube channel also reaches thousands of people, inspiring people in Latin American countries and all around the world to make a positive change in their lives. The simple idea of food as medicine is the guiding principle of what Maurizio teaches, making the plant-based lifestyle a question of personal health and well-being. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the PVN podcast, Dr. G. What a pleasure to finally sit down with you. Likewise, Robbie. I'm so happy to be here. This week's podcast is supported by Eat Planted. Eat Planted is a Swiss company dedicated to changing the way we eat with tasty and sustainable plant-based meats. Famous for their record-breaking schnitzel and winning the Best Tasting Chicken Award at the Plant-Based World Expo in London, they built a stunning glass-walled factory, welcoming everybody to see exactly how their food is made. Transparency is just as important as taste for the Eat Planted team. Now launching in the UK, head over to eatplanted.com's shop and use the discount code PBN20 for 20% off delicious food that's great for animals and the planet. Probably, Jenna, you've heard this many times. Reduce your risk of chronic diseases. But let's face it, that's not sexy. The more fruits, veggies, whole grains and legumes that you have in your plate, the thinner slimmer you'll be. I want people to say, hey, do you eat plant-based? Yeah, cool, that's it. Like, no dilemma, no discussion. This is, of course, it's healthy. Bye, move on, bye. So I've been following you for a while and, you know, I absolutely love your social media and your passion for the subject and your determination to educate and inspire and, and really kind of empower people. So I'm really excited to hear your story uh, and learn more about all the incredible things that you're doing with your life today. But before we do that, uh, let's go back in time and I want to hear your plant-based story. How did you discover the plant-based lifestyle and where did it all begin for you? It began almost 19 years ago. I was in college. I was deeply frustrated with my way of life. I, you know, I was partying a lot, you know, <laughs> drinking, smoking. I, I, I really didn't have a healthy lifestyle. And funny enough, I was studying nutrition and human science. So you would think that I was quite aware of the impact of poor lifestyle choices, but I wasn't. And then I needed a change. So I decided 
from one day to another to completely unroot all these bad habits that I was implementing on a daily basis. I quit smoking. I stopped drinking. I joined a triathlon team. And then I decided to eat more veggies, more fruits, cut down red meat and whatnot. And then one thing led to another. I started doing research about vegetarian diets, vegan diets. I still remember, uh, as clear as yesterday, I remember thinking, I'm going to give it a try for three months. Let's see how it goes. And it's just stuck. It stuck with me. I became very, very passionate about it, up to the point that I saw plant-based nutrition as perhaps not the only solution, but as a nice solution to the problem we have in Latin America regarding chronic diseases, obesity, diabetes, hypertension. So I decided to start giving lectures to anyone who would want to <laughs> listen to me. And then we grew. We started giving lectures in Mexico City, then we moved to the whole country. And eventually after a decade, now our voices are heard in all Latin America. Nowadays, my wife and I, we, we have a medical seminar called Veggie Power Summit, which is basically spreading the word of the scientific basis of plant-based diets through all Latin America, Colombia, Venezuela, Costa Rica, Argentina, Chile, Peru, obviously Mexico, and most Latinos in United States and Europe too. Amazing. Wow, what a brilliant story. And your summit sounds fantastic. Uh, uh, unfortunately, it would be Spanish, right? You would speak right. at the summit. Right. Unfortunately, I do not speak Spanish, <laughs> even though it is a language of my ancestors. Um, <laughs> I would love to attend maybe uh, maybe in a few years once I've, uh, I've learned, but that sounds like a brilliant thing. And thank you for sharing that story. Um, I guess, you know, are we quite interested to learn about your education? Um, and you talked about your frustration in this area, in these areas of plant-based nutrition. You know, over the years, have you seen enough of a change in the medical world in, in, in the area of that you work that are shifting more towards a plant-based diet? Or do you feel like there's a very long way to go still? I mean, there's always a long way to go, but I'm an optimistic, Robbie. And I think we've seen tremendous change, tremendous change, uh, especially in the medical world. Sometimes I get frustrated on social media when I read comments like, oh, doctors hate plant-based nutrition and, and this and that, and that's absolutely not true. If you start reading the guidelines from the American Heart Association, the American Association of Endocrinologists, the Association of Obesity Researchers, you, you will find a common theme, which is the diet should be mostly based on plant foods. So just by starting saying that these huge medical guidelines are promoting plant-based nutrition to me that's that's a big reason to be optimistic about the future now what people often don't fully understand about medical change is that science it's only the beginning robbie it's like with vaccines right we were so happy oh my god researchers created vaccines and then people didn't want them so you can only go as far as the community wants to go. The best way to describe this is that it's not enough to have clinical guidelines promoting plant-based nutrition. You have to explain this way of life to your community, to your people. And that's what doctors should be doing right now. 
and we don't do it. Why? Because we're bad? No, because we don't have the training. We don't have the time. We don't have the resources. No one told us when we went to med school that at some point these reaching out to our community was going to be such a big part of our lives. But now we face this challenge and a lot of the doctors in the medical community are, you know, stepping up and they're doing it. But, you know, we need help. We need the community. We need the media. We need researchers. We need social leaders. We need a huge diversity of people to step up as well. We've all got a lot on our plates right now, but here's something you'll want to make room for. The story of a food so natural, it takes the rain from the sky and the plants we humans cannot eat and turns it into something wonderful. Essential nutrients our bodies need to help us stay healthy. Meat and dairy. Enjoy the food you eat. Eat balanced. Do you ever feel frustrated by the media because, you know, you guys are out there doing this incredible work advocating for lifestyle medicine, helping people transform their health and wellness, and then you might see a major news publication saying butter is back um, or, you know, meat is back on the menu, you know, beef isn't bad, <laughs> a lot of it's alliteration there. How do you feel about that? You know, does it frustrate you? You know, do you do you, you know feel depressed by it? like what is it about the media that you think really needs to change? Uh, you know, Robbie, it frustrates me a lot, but it's also bad for us as plant-based community. You know, you you're right. You no, know, when you read butter is back, but you also read vegan diets can cure cancer. That doesn't help our community either. So these kind of very loud headlines hurt both sides, the science and our plant-based communities. I think what we lack right now is a middle ground. Doctors, leaders, plant-based promoters to, you know, explain our lifestyle to the public, but also be inclusive. Like, okay, if you don't want to go 100% plant-based, it's fine. Let's do it at 70%. We'll start there. I think the plant-based community has been losing members because of that. Because of that staunch practices to only say it's either 100% plant-based or you're not my friend at all. And this kind of behavior goes against human psychology. Like you want to feel like you have freedom. When people start to feel like once you go into the plant-based, there's no freedom. That's only, it's the only thing you can eat. People are afraid of this. And instead of judging them, we should be understanding them. And also there's the big misunderstanding of lifestyle medicine, which people think when they hear this term, that means only nutrition, only diet, only exercise and sleep will cure all diseases. And that's also not true. So what we need to know, what we need to do nowadays, Robbie, is to teach our community that modern medicine science, and a plant-based lifestyle can coexist. And once they understand that, that they're not antagonistic, I think we will be able to reach more places and more people. Six months old, when they were forced into a carbon dioxide gas chamber, when they suffocated to death, they thrashed so hard that their feet came off. They burned from the inside out. Intelligent than dogs. They're the third most intelligent.
Across the world, obviously, there are millions of people who adhere to a plant-based lifestyle, but the vegan community, which is often a group of people who are much more passionate about animal rights and animal welfare, can often be a little blinded by emotions, you could say. You have often, I've seen you often in the comment section or you know, in, in, on Instagram, really talking about the importance of science and the scientific method, talking about vaccines, talking about modern medicine. Do you think the vegan community has a bit of an identity problem or a bit of an attitude problem towards science? Or do you think it's more on an individual level? I think we have a problem as a community. I, I think we do have a problem because we identify ourselves with ideas that make no sense in 2021. First of all, I got to say that people who belong to the vegan community, they have this amazing, amazing ideal of liberating all animals. And I mean, I have it too, you know, but what happens is that you cannot go through life thinking that everything you believe is true and the rest of the world is wrong. The rest of the world goes against us. I think it's our fault as vegan community members to not stepping up and talk to our people. We, we, we let this issue pass, Robbie. Now we have a huge problem. We have a lot of community members that do not believe in science, do not believe in vaccines. They think the medical business is corrupt. And then we're not going to move forward if we continue acting like this. We've got to remain free. We've had enough of this lockdown. I'm actually a scientist. I've had four lab jobs. I knew this was wrong from nearly the beginning. I'm worried about the state of our democracy. I'm watching it turn into a fascist state at the moment as sort of brought out the activists in both of us, I think. <laughs> what are your views? We're being manipulated or the whole COVID situation is, uh, yeah, is a manipulation on true facts. Uh, for a deeper agenda to encourage vaccination. Quite why is obviously there's lots of conspiracy theories about what's going on there, leading to vaccine passport, but mostly, ultimately, just leading to more control. When it comes to deciphering what's true or not, um, there's many aspects to the conversation. There's understanding studies, there's looking at industry, kind of inside in industry-funded studies, there's looking at social media influences, there's expert opinions, there's that hierarchy of evidence. I was talking to our friend uh, Simon Hill of Plant Proof recently about it. Most people are not trained in, in deciphering and understanding the difference between what is fact and what is fiction. And social media has become very good at polarizing people. Do you feel like there needs to be more education on how to decipher information? Because I think that when it comes to health information, for example, as we just talked about, these big catchy headlines are very good at getting people's attention. But when you drill down into them and you look at the facts and the figures, a lot of the time they do not hold up. They're not scientifically sound. Do you feel like there needs to be more of a push towards educating the masses really about how to decipher what's true and what isn't? We can do two things. Definitely, I agree with Simon. We need to educate our community to, so they can decipher what, what is true and what is fiction. Okay, what is fact, not truth, because truth is an elusive term, but what is fact and what is fiction. And the other part that we need to be doing is that we as science communicators, we should be doing a better job. What do I mean by that? Instead of writing these big, difficult to understand words on social media, we should 
digest the scientific facts and provide them in an easy-to-read, easy-to-understand manner. If we do those two things continuously, we can definitely see a big change in the vegan community within a year. Do you think there needs to be an organization set up specifically for this? Do you think it's that much of a problem? Do we need to all get together? I mean, I did make an effort to try and bring all the doctors to get the plant-based doctors together <laughs> in a Telegram group, which for a while actually was really interesting. So just to the listeners, I brought together not a secret Telegram group, but a group of, of all the top plant-based doctors that I knew to talk about the issue of vaccine hesitancy amongst the vegan community because the vegan community is a very loud and passionate group of people and actually there's a lot of power in that um, people have the power to advocate for animal rights for environmental issues and also health of which vaccine sits underneath that and i feel like you know each of us are working away in their silos trying to educate people but you know perhaps there is time to create a coalition of some sort something more formal that you know works with NGOs and nonprofits and charities to try to create a bit more trust, really, because obviously you know this pandemic that just passed, it's not going to be the last, is it? There will be others, and if we continue to have this level of vaccine hesitancy, it's very concerning. Do you agree? I do agree, and it's a huge problem. Howard Stern is still trending on social media Thursday for comments he made earlier in the week about anti-vaxxers. On a Sirius XM program Tuesday, the shock jock railed against those who refused to take the COVID-19 vaccine, while also mocking some conservative radio hosts who fanned the flames for vaccine doubters only to then die of the virus themselves. Stern made this comment concerning mandatory vaccinations. As far as I remember, when I went to school, you had to get a measles vaccine, you had to get a mumps vaccine, you had to get there was a ton of them you got. He went on to refer to anti-vaxxers who say the decision to not get the shot is tied to their personal freedom. When are we going to stop putting up with the idiots in this country and just say, you now, it's mandatory to get vaccinated. F*** them, f*** their freedom. I want my freedom to live. The 67-year-old radio personality added, The only thing I hate is that all these people with COVID who won't get vaccinated are in the hospitals clogging it up. A bold stern claimed that those who refuse the vaccine should be refused treatment once they are infected, saying, you have the cure and you wouldn't take it. Amid his rant, Stern also mocked those who use their large platforms to push back against the vaccines. Listen, Robbie, there's going to be diversity of thinking. That's for sure. Even within the whole vegan medical community. You know, sometimes I agree with doctors who say, uh, let's increase the protein intake. Or I might disagree with doctors who say no oil. But, you know, those are harmless. But when the vegan community, when the vegan medical community think that modern medicine is corrupt, that science is corrupted, that vaccines are bad, oof, those are hard obstacles to overcome. That's basically an ideology barrier, and that's going to be very, very hard to overcome. We have to accept and embrace the fact that there's going to be diversity. If you ask me, I'm not entirely sure that this kind of institution would suffice or would work for that matter. I think what I'm doing along with a, a, a very select group of physicians, the, the vegan physicians, is that we're basically letting our community know that science is not a cult. It's not a religion. It's just a systematic way to approach problems. Science will never tell you this is the truth. It will tell you this is what we know so far and things can change. So we're educating people to know this kind of ambiguous thinking as core of the scientific process. People are responding 
or people are responding. But if you try to create an institution with different minds, different ideologies, trying to combat these, I don't know, it, it's going to be hard. I mean, it sounds idealistic, but I don't know if that can be possible, mm. to be honest. So we, we know the importance and the role that social networks play in this problem. Recently, Facebook has been exposed, Instagram has been exposed for being, you know, the central nexus for spreading all this false information, this misinformation, this disinformation, right? And just to obviously dis differentiate between misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation is, mis is information that's incorrect, that's often shared by people uh, out of, usually with, with good intentions. They don't realize it's false. Whereas disinformation is being purposely created to mislead and, uh, and confuse people. Now, according to the data and according to these leaks, there are about 12 people responsible and what, are they, what they're being called as the super spreaders of false information, uh, particularly about vaccines, but other health related issues as well. Do you feel like, and I don't know whether you're a proponent of free speech and where the line is with free speech and actually also dangerous speech. Do you feel like social networks need to kick these people off the platforms or do you feel like there needs to be more sort of labeling of, you know, and Facebook needs to do more? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, we, we both agree that Facebook needs to do more for sure. I actually am very aware of that uh, research that you mentioned that comes from centers of countering hate in UK. And we know these super spreaders and, know, and we know what they do. The problem with this speech is that it's often portrayed as free speech. And this is where the social media companies are struggling because we also have agreed that censoring is a very big thing to do. It's, it's not easy. Even though I despite false information to go through social media, even for me, it's very hard to just think like they should remove this guy or, or this woman from social media. It's hard because at the end of the day, it's free of speech or whatever. I think what they can do, and this I have discussed actually with a lot of people on, on, on social media, is that when you go to school, if you're a good student, you get an A, an A+. Plus, and they give you a badge of honor, why can't they do that on social media? Why can't they promote real science communicator, communicators with a very good track record of being fact-based? Why can't they promote them or put a small badge of honor in their personal accounts? I mean, you know, something to sep at least separate the people who are promoting good scientific information and the people who are not. I think that would be a good step towards more reliable information on social media. When it comes to going back again to you know facts or uh, fiction, <laughs> there are so many layers to the conversation. There's health, there's medicines, there's vaccines, there's you know there's so many different concerns that people have on a day-to-day -day basis. Most of the time, people go to the internet. They go to Google when they want to find something, and when you search on Google, you don't always get the facts you often get misinformation or disinformation or advertising disguised as true information or factual information. You know, when it comes to vaccines and just keeping on that just for a little longer, people have genuine fears. They are afraid of blood clots. They're afraid of death, early death from the vaccine due to some complication. They're afraid of heart problems. When they go onto social media, they see their friends and family sharing all of these stories about real people who've allegedly died in their millions from the vaccines. We've tried facts. 
We've tried to talk to people about the facts. We've talked about reality. How do you feel we can get through? And this can go with nutrition as well, I suppose. How do we communicate with people if we can't use facts? I'm optimistic, but up to a point. I, I, I don't think that that part has a solution because you explain it very well. There's misinformation and, and there's disinformation. Misinformation is often an emotional-based response. And I'm going to give you an example. Let's see your mother knows that you have a skin condition, a very weird skin condition. And then your mother is on vacation in New Zealand and she finds out about this doctor that has this remedy, right, for the skin condition you have. Your mother loves you. And the first thing she's going to do is send you the information of this guy. Because this skin condition that you have is an emotional thing to you, you will probably believe it. And then guess what? What you're going to do is take that WhatsApp message your mom sent you and you're going to spread it too. And that's misinformation at its core. It's an emotional response to something that thing will solve your life and will help protect others. So that part of misinformation, there's nothing we can do about it because that's part of being humans. Disinformation, yes. Oh, yes. We have many tools to avoid this. What? Getting together medias, the, the, the media companies, and ask them to fact check, hire scientific communicators who have good track records, try to organize and create an institution to hunt these dubious sites that are creating this content, this false content. But misinformation as a human emotional response, that's going to be very, very hard to fight. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've done it in the past. You know, that's how emotions can trick you. I mean, you, you're part of that. I, I've At some point in my life, I'm pretty sure I have shared misinformation many times. Social networks are built for that, aren't they? They're built to create emotional connections between people, right? You see something, it creates an emotion and, we, and you send it off. The Center for Countering Digital Hate has shown that Facebook knows that triggering anger in people is the best way to keep them engaged. When people feel anger, they feel that they have to respond and they have to stay engaged in the platform. So they elevate content they know will create anger. And this is the insidious aspect of social networks and why I truly believe that social networks have to be regulated because they have essentially been able to build their billions, their trillions of dollars of revenue and uh, an influence billions of minds without any regulation. Every other piece of media on the planet, even plant-based news, we're regulated. We have an independent body that keeps an eye on what we do, whether we are factual. And if we break the, the rules, we are dragged over the hot coals, as we say here in the UK. <laughs> it's important to have a credibility and accountability because if you don't have that, then you're just, you can't be trusted ultimately. So um, I really appreciate your answers on that. You're absolutely right. I do a lot of uh, TV for Latin America. I do CNN. I do Univision, Telemundo. I'm a regular uh, medical host there. And I can tell you this. Unfortunately, TV is dying, and you know that. You know, Social media is taking over. YouTube is taking over. But what the TV business has is exactly that, accountability. You have a producer. The producer has to fact check everything you say. They have to send articles. Do you have a meeting before the show to discuss the articles? Where do you get them? How up to date? 
are they? You know, that's what TV has, and that's what social media should have. It's it can't be the same as TV because there are different processes, but it can definitely happen if they put their mind into it. And please don't tell me that this is a budget problem. <laughs> they have unlimited amount of, of economic resources, so they can make it happen. Yeah, they're the, I think Facebook's now one of the biggest, most wealthiest companies on the planet, so they do have the resources to bring changes. Let's bring it back to plant-based and nutrition and wellness and health. In your experience, you know, what are, are some of the sort of key barriers, in your opinion, that are stopping people adopting this lifestyle? Because you hear all sorts of criticism. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. You're not going to get your nutrients. But what are your, in your experience in working with your patients, you know, what are some of the things that people struggle with most to adopt it? My thinking is a little bit different from other plant-based doctors, I, I, just a tiny little bit different not not that different is that i don't know if it's me i don't know if it's the right way to approach it i don't know but what i like to do robbie when i talk to my patients about plant-based nutrition is talk about the things the good things the positive outcomes of eating more plants i never ever mention about bad things from animal products I focus 100% my medical visit talking about how whole grains, legumes, olive oil, high-protein vegetable foods, and fruits and vegetables can impact their lives. So I don't focus on shaming any other food. I, I focus on that. Basically, what I'm trying to do is like being PR for plant-based foods. That's basically what I do. And people get it. It's easier, maybe for the Latin community maybe it's easier for them to understand that message that these foods are good focus on them don't focus on the things you're gonna leave behind just focus on the things you're gonna eat so that's my main message and that's what I do it's me obviously I'm biased but I think this message is a little bit more inclusive like people don't feel like they belong to a dietary tribe they believe they're just following advice from their doctors Oats and other whole grains are incredibly healthy, but a lot of people fear them because they believe they will gain weight because it has too many carbs. I will give you scientific reasons to encourage you to add oatmeal to your daily diet. Oats are super nutritious. They contain great amounts of molybdenum, manganese, and fiber, and decent amounts of zinc, calcium, and protein. An oatmeal bowl not only mitigates your hunger almost immediately, but it also reduces significantly your LDL cholesterol, better known as the bad cholesterol. This is highly relevant because epidemiological studies have shown that every 1% of reduction in LDL cholesterol, you reduce 2% your chances of getting a myocardial infarction. Oats contain a specific type of fiber called beta-glucan. This substance can reduce LDL cholesterol anywhere from 10 to 23% in hypercholesterolemic subjects, that is, people who have high levels of cholesterol, people who usually have cholesterol levels above 220 milligrams per deciliter. Not only the fiber makes this food a superfood, but it also contains incredibly antioxidants. One of them is called avenanthramides, and these substances have shown in very good scientific studies to reduce the oxidation of LDL cholesterol. 
what are some of the sort of success stories of plant-based nutrition? What are some of the sort of things that you've seen transform in people's lives? You know, it's very easy to transform people's lives, Robbie. If, if you read the scientific literature, let's say you have a patient with obesity, hypertension, prediabetes or diabetes, we know from a lot of scientific studies that the only thing that they need to do is lose 5 to 10% of their body weight, eat more fiber, do some exercise, do strength resistance training, and then they can increase their quality of life almost immediately. It's, it's just crazy how rapid it can happen. Most of my patients undergo that. Just by losing 5%, their blood pressure drops, their cholesterol levels drop, you know, triglycerides drop, and they become stronger, leaner, and immediately their quality of life improves. I, I think the success stories are pretty much the same. I got to say, and I got to be very honest with you, that sometimes you have to use medicines, and that's part of it. You know, it, it's not about one or the other. It's about integrating both worlds to help the patient. So just going back to the topic of lifestyle medicine, talk us through what that actually means in a practical level. So my experience with doctors is usually you sit down, explain the problem, they give you pills, you leave. <laughs> you know, like how does a, a doctor who's learned lifestyle medicine, how does that change your interactions with a patient? The problem, Robbie, is that people tend to focus on how you do it as a doctor in one medical visit. That's almost impossible. So you have to establish an alliance with your patient for at least six months. If you don't have that, you're not going to be successful. You need six months with your patient, especially with someone like the typical Western adult with obesity, hypertension, prediabetes, high cholesterol, blah, blah, blah. Basically, I focus on one single topic per visit. The first visit is usually about calories in, calories out. The, simple, the, the, the simplest concept to understand. Whether you believe it or not, that concept is still hidden for a lot of people. They still think that good foods will make you lose weight, bad foods will make you gain. They don't understand the concept of calories in, calories out. Then the second medical visit, we talk about quality of food. And that's where I explain them. I usually use the healthy eating plate by Harvard how to divide their plate with fruits, veggies, whole grains, and healthy protein. I don't necessarily tell them to go strictly plant-based. We certainly discuss it, and then they choose. And most of my patients, they choose 50-50. They say 50% of my protein will be animal and 50% will be plant-based. Of course, I have patients who are 100% plant-based, but I always give them that choice. The third medical visit, we talk about sleep and exercise. And then from there on, we basically just do follow-ups, check blood work, okay? We talk about mind obstacles that might be barriers for them to keep improving. You know, sometimes some of my patients, they don't want to weigh themselves every 15 days because, you know, I don't want to do it, but why not? And then you start to realize that they have these, these are mechanisms to protect yourself from failure, from not able to move forward. So I would say that that's how my medical visits go. So we start with the basics and we just basically do the follow-up. It sounds like a fantastic uh, way to work. And you know, I want to personally would love to see doctors all the world over doing this. But what do you say to sort of people who work in the medical world who want to do this, but 
they are very frustrated or limited by their time. Like in the UK, for example, general practitioners, GPs, have very little time with their patients. And, you know, each of them, I think one of our friends, Dr. Gemma Newman, has like 3,000 plus patients on her GP list. How can we, if you're, if you see, if you're a private doctor, obviously people coming to you, they pay you and they pay you to spend time with them. As a general practitioner working in the public service, which is obviously most of the world, you know, how are you, how is it possible to work in this way? Is it even possible to work in this way? Yeah, it's very hard, Robbie. I'm an internal medicine physician and an emergency medicine physician. And the work that I do in the lifestyle medicine world is mostly private. Uh, I do courses, my medical seminar, one-to-one consultations. I, for me, it has to be private. There's just no other way I can make this happen. Here comes a realization that people don't have. When you see doctors, you think they're autonomous beings. They're not. They have bosses. We, we, we have you know chiefs, and we have rules, and we have clinic hours, and we have time, and we have these and that. So most of the time, we cannot make decisions ourselves. In the public sector, it's incredibly difficult to do lifestyle medicine. I mean, there are some lucky people like my friend, Dr. Michelle McMacken, who's in New York, that runs the plant-based clinic in Bellevue. But you know, but that's one in what? It's, it's a unique place, right? Oh, I got to say, Robbie, it, it, it's pretty tough. If, if you're in the public sector, uh, I don't think you can make it happen. How can, we, how can we bring change, though? Because obviously, to, make, to reduce the barrier of entry into this lifestyle from a med- medical perspective, you know, how can policymakers and, and politicians, how can they be supporting the facilitation of this modality you know, in the medical world? Because obviously, as we all know, this is an essential way to dramatically reduce chronic disease. Medical facilities or medical systems around the world are completely overburdened by chronic disease, your type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease. It's the leading killer of humans. Yet we have the solutions, but the people who can advocate for them or at least you know connect with the, with the patients can only be done through private um, methods, which is always often price-wise way out of, you know, it's, it's impossible for the, a lot of the average person. Do you have any thoughts or ideas of how lobby, lobby makers, and sorry, not lobby makers, they're the ones we're fighting, but <laughs> politicians and kind of policy makers could actually try and bring real change? Yes, yes, I, I do have an idea. And that idea does not entail being in your office or in the hospital. It means being outside in the community. And let me explain to you. What's the success behind vaccines? That you give vaccines to healthy people. And when they encounter a disease, their bodies are well trained to fight off this virus, right? So we should be doing exactly the same for plant-based nutrition or lifestyle medicine for that matter. We should be reaching out to people who are still healthy and try to teach them to establish, establish this lifestyle very early on or go to people's work, or going to schools, and try to train these before it's too late. And this has... Prevention is better than cure. Correct. But the thing is that prevention used to be this elusive, very idealistic term. Now we have scientific data by Dr. Taylor in United Kingdom. He showed that when a patient is diagnosed with diabetes... With type 2 diabetes, we know for a fact that for 10 to 12 years before that, this 
metabolic disturbances have been going on. And they just reached the tip of the iceberg at the moment of diagnosis. So by us moving the needle towards the healthy people outside, oh man, we can create a massive change, massive change. But that requires will, money, political collaboration, but it can definitely happen. I agree. It can happen. And when, you know, if we can present the facts to politicians, and I know facts aren't always our friends, but, you know, type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, these things cost the medical industry or medical, the public medical facilities billions of dollars every year, right? Yet a plant-based diet can stop and reverse in many cases these these chronic diseases. Do you think, I mean, because obviously the data is there, do you think people are just willfully ignorant about it still? Or do you think that industry, you know, like in what was discussed in What the Health, do you feel like the medical, and we've talked about the corruptness of the pharmaceutical industry, do you feel like there is some kind of collusion that's stopping this information getting to more people? Because as we know, if more people switch to a whole food plant-based diet, will dramatically reduce the chronic diseases across the board, which will dramatically reduce the, the pressure on the medical world. But if we know this and it's not getting through to the medical world in its entirety, is there something blocking it or is it just because the whole system moves really slowly? It's like an existential threat, like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast when we were talking behind the scenes, you know, obesity, diabetes. Yes, yes, people know that it's a bad thing, but they don't see it. They don't feel it. They don't feel the urgency to act upon it. That's, that's a problem with human design. That, that's something that is very bad of us. Also, the lack of organization. And a lot of people think like, oh, governments, they don't want to do this. And the medical industry don't, uh, doesn't want to do this because it's not good for them. That's nonsense. Let me give you one example. In my medical seminar, Veggie Power Summit, one of our main sponsors is one of the biggest pharmacy chains in, in Mexico. And just to give you an example, this pharmacy chain, they banned alcohol, they banned tobacco and sugary drinks from their stores. When was the last, I don't know how is it in UK, but when you go to a pharmacy here in, in United States, you can buy alcohol, tobacco, and sugary drinks all you want. And, and this pharmacy in Mexico took the bold move to ban these high revenue products. And not only that, they're supporting my seminar that promotes plant-based nutrition that can potentially remove clients from their stores. So I don't think that's true. I think it's a matter of Again, will, organization, and having some sense of moral compass. <laughs> we have to make it trendy. We have to make it hip. Like these political entities, they have to see some sort of incentive to do this. But it's totally, it's totally doable. Totally doable. It, with the right will, absolutely agree with you. With the right will, it is doable. But I, I can't help but stick on this point of corruption or collusion because you know there are many stories about giant pharmaceutical companies really putting profit above people knowing that this, that that drugs are dangerous or you know cause real problems with people but yet continue to sell them you know falsifying information you know i won't mention any names because i'll probably get sued but you know there is many examples and you can understand why people don't trust pharma the pharmaceutical medical world Doctors used to recommend cigarettes to, to people at, some, at one point 
there have been many examples of you know things that just are not good for us and doctors or the medical world has been deeply entwined with that do you think that because we live in this sort of capitalist world where you know money and finance and economics are so much at the forefront that you know maybe many of these organizations have kind of lost their humanity and because they're so huge and faceless that people ultimately just see them as untrustworthy as ever you know you've given some great examples of how they they some of them are doing great work but do you think people will ever trust the the, the giant pharmaceutical companies it's funny I, i think there's a lot of people that do not trust them the example that you mentioned like when doctors used to promote smoking I've seen a lot of people who are against pharmaceutical companies and the medical industry bringing up that exact same example. And I got to tell you, I mean, we have to move on. Yes, doctors did that. Okay, but that's it. No, not anymore. We learned the science and we're against that now. I mean, that's how humanity is. We live, we learn, and then we change. And now, luckily, Robbie, we have a lot of checkpoints to avoid that misinformation by pharmaceutical ha- companies to happen. We have regulators. Uh, we have the World Health Organization. We have a lot of checkpoints to avoid these bad things to happen. And will they continue to happen? Of course. It, it, it's life. I think for the most part, unfortunately, we have to trust a little bit in our institutions because that's the only way to move forward. And we cannot be you know, distrusting everybody. Because that's not going to lead us anywhere. These companies in the past, have they made any mistakes? I'm sure they have. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm sure they have. But I guess what we need to do is we cannot use one simple example in history to explain everything bad that is happening right now. That's not how things work. We need to explain things in a one-to-one basis. At the end of the day, we need to see these organizations as a collection of individual people. And there are bad actors within these individual organizations. And there are good people as well. That We cannot tar entire organizations with one brush because ultimately, at the end of the day, I know personally good people working in the pharmaceutical industry who've worked day and, and, day and night over the last two years to, to be involved in vaccine production to help save people's lives, people who work in the nutrition sector as well, who have good intentions, who might be involved in, you know, selling products that include animal products, but they believe that it's good for people because that's what they've been taught, that's what they see in their in their uh, research, and they believe that. And I think that when you try to see the good in people, you understand that most people are not out to be evil, uh, and that the evil that we sort of think we see is more just bad decision making, poor judgment misinterpretation of the data uh, and at the end of the day you know we don't have this evil overlord <laughs> in the pharmaceutical industry like dr evil with the evil you know the cat <laughs> you know these people don't really exist i mean you know there are some people in the media who i think are a little bit like that but <laughs> we won't talk about them but yeah i appreciate your your answers on that i know it's such a complicated subject because it's as you said you talked about like organization and that actually you know, having this idea that these organizations are so methodical and, 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 and the way they plan this stuff, it's not possible for such a large groups of people to be so organized that actually human beings by their very nature are quite chaotic. And a lot of the time we're all just doing our very best 
to create a better world and you know stick with the with the things that we care about but moving on to uh veggie power summit again i'd love to talk a bit more about that and hear about you know why you set it up and and uh, how it's been going and, and learn a little bit more about you know how it all came into being i i think robbie that the veggie power summit is that we're basically providing a platform so the medical guidelines can reach the general public and we do it in such a fun way with interviews and easy to understand short lectures and what is most important about our summit is that our sponsors are truly diverse we've had adidas for two years right now we have the largest producer of canned plant-based foods la costeña and we have this pharmacy chain called san pablo which is the pharmacy chain that banned tobacco, alcohol, and sugary drinks from their stores. So what we're trying to show the people is that science is here to advance ourselves. People can change, and industries, they can adapt. And, and we're trying to portray that image, that plant-based world is a normal way of life. It's not radical. It's not extremist. It's simple. It's inclusive. It's fun. It's science-based. It's trendy. I know that I don't have the solution to everything, but very early on on my career, I realized that if you don't try to normalize things, people will not go for them. So that's what I'm doing right now. We're normalizing plant-based nutrition. Fantastic. I love the sound of that. Coming to the end now, what are some of the things, uh, exciting things that are in the pipeline? Have you got any new projects that you're working on? Anything you'd love to share with us? Absolutely. So, I mean, the Veggie Power Summit, thank God, has grown tremendously. Almost 3,000 people attended our summit this year. We want to take this to the next level. We want to move to other Spanish-speaking places like Spain. We want to partner with medical universities so they can provide these these lectures to medical students. I really want to be so successful that I can give thousands of scholarships to nutritionists and, and med students. That's one of my main goals. We also want to create a lifestyle modification course for people who want to lose weight or they have prediabetes and online. And we want to create it by having myself as a doctor, a nutritionist, and a personal trainer. And we're hoping to do this remotely. That's the earliest thing we have in the pipeline right now. Sounds very exciting. And when that launches, please let us know so we can shout about it on Plant Based News. <laughs> Thank you. I will. Before I let you go, I would like to ask my guests this one final question. So if you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, if, I gave, if I gave you one vegan dish, one music album and uh, one book, what would you take with you? Oh, easy. Vegan dish, Tempe Tacos, music, Depeche Mode. And what was the other one? The book. I would say Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Amazing. Love those choices. Dr. G, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Robbie, likewise. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN podcast. We're back next week with more food, veganism, fashion, technology, animals, and everything in between. <laughs>